Sin always has consequences. God, in His mercy, however, has provided indulgences as a remedy for some of those consequences. Today, we'll talk about the history, theology, and the use of indulgences with our special guest, Dr. Mary Mormon, the author of the new book, Indulgences, Luther, Catholicism, and the Imputation of Merit. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Strategic Relations at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, and today we'll be talking about the topic of indulgences. I'm joined here in our studios with a special uh, panelist here, uh, Dr. William Newton, who's a professor of theology here at Franciscan University, and our regular panelist, Dr. Scott Hahn, who holds the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization, and our special guest, Dr. Mary Mormon. Uh, you have your law degree from uh, Boston University, your uh, it's a Master's in Religion from Yale, uh, PhD in Systematic Theology from Southern Methodist, as well as you had your undergrad at Hillsdale. So a very eclectic and ecumenical approach to your uh, academic background. You've been a lecturer in both law as well as religion at Southern Methodist University, the University of New Haven, and Boston University. You're a recent convert uh, to the Catholic Church, which is wonderful, and you're the author of the new book, Indulgences, Luther, Catholicism, and the Imputation of, of Merit. So welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It is great to have you. Well, I, I do think when, when you talk about indulgences, you know, we're, we, we had the celebration of the 500th anniversary, so this brings up a lot of kind of uh, maybe some bad images for a lot of people, uh, and, uh, and a lot of people use indulgences as a, as a weapon against Catholics oftentimes. But let's start with uh, some basics and understanding what does the Catholic Church mean by, or how does it define indulgences? So technically, the official definition, as we find in the Catechism, is an indulgence of the remission of the temporal punishment which is due for sins, okay. which have already been forgiven okay. through sacramental confession by the authority of the Church who acts as the minister of redemption. Wow. So that that's verbatim. When I explain it, um, in my own words, I say that it's God's merciful provision by which we can redeem our time. Mm. We can sort of buy it back. Wow. Um, and I think it's that idea of buying something from yes. our Lord that has caused a bit of controversy over yeah. the past half millennium. Yeah, because I mean, that was the, the whole claims of, you know, buying indulgences, you're buying your way out of hell and those, those sorts of uh, false statements. But but it's, it's, it's sin that's already been forgiven. Right, so you're working on the the, the 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 consequences of those sins that have already been forgiven. Exactly. I think it's important to clarify at least a couple things. On the one hand, you're hard pressed to find a topic more difficult, controversial, and misunderstood. I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to mix metaphors and say it's a minefield and a swamp. <laughs> I mean, it could there are mines in that swamp. Okay, that's right. You know, but what? might be helpful, I think, on the, on the other hand, is just to clarify what indulgences aren't. You know, you're not buying your way into heaven. You're not also buying your way or working your way out of hell. You're also not saving souls who are in purgatory. You're applying the merits of Jesus Christ 
who has given those generously, lavishly to his mystical body as his bride, so that as a mother, she is indulgent without being unlawful. You know? <laughs> and I think that this, this, this approach to it, which is so profoundly biblical, it's also rooted in a patristic understanding of the church as the body of Christ, is deeply personalistic. I mean, once you get the inner logic of the love of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, spilling into the Blessed Virgin especially, who embodies the church as bride and mother. You know, it's sort of like, well, why didn't you say it that way, you know, 500 <laughs> years ago? Yeah, yeah, know? yeah. Well, and I, I think that, that, that people use it against the church, but then there's, a, there's too many in the church that don't understand its place and its proper order, and that some people think they're, they're a thing of the past and no longer relevant in our lives today. Um, so let's go back a little bit. How old is the practice of indulgences? So... Indulgences as a concept and a practice within the church goes back to the early days of the martyrs and the early persecution of the church. And um, historians have noted that an, um, when a martyr was set to be um, executed, mm -hmm. they would write a letter of intercession to hmm. be given to a penitent who might be excluded from his, um, his individual community um, because of sins he had committed. And the martyr would say, I am going to give my whole self to our Lord, mm. um, for my sake, admit this poor penitent back sooner than you might otherwise. Wow. And that just echoes um, the words of St. Paul in the New Testament when he's writing about Philemon. For my sake, take back this brother in Christ. Mm. And so um, these letters would be presented to the, the pastors of the communities and the penitents would say, for the sake of, of my brother who's given everything for Jesus when I have failed, hmm. let his merits and let his, his prayers before the Lord make up for what I lack. Wow. Wow. And, and one of the incredible things there is that th these letters are being written maybe by people who are about to be martyred and they're normally being written for individuals who actually have given up the faith. So we're talking about the persecution situation in which you've got to church which is kind of scattered when the wolf comes in and some of them are actually sort of giving up the faith they and others are holding on and those who are holding on they 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 more than satisfy for their sins and in a certain sense they've got something left over mm. and they are prepared to give it to the one who really needs now to do something in order to make amends for their sin of giving up the faith so it's not just a martyr giving a letter to, to anybody. It's, it was often the martyr writing a letter, which was basically for the very one who sort of, in a certain sense, may have even betrayed them. Mm. And that's powerful. I mean, it's, it's an individual act, but they're seeing this is, this, is the, this is the body of Christ. You know, we're not separate from each other. We're one big family, and as I might sacrifice for a child or a spouse, uh, they are, in turn, offering their lives, offering their sacrifices as meritorious, uh, right? Uh, you don't exactly. find the whole theology of indulgence is contained in that, but what you find is a seed that germinates and grows mm. and begins to reveal this insight that the Holy Spirit imparts the church into the non-competitive enterprise <laughs> of salvation. Mm. That it isn't a free market, you know, where you just simply buy and sell. It really is, you know, the commercial exchange is covenantal, as you put out, point out in the book, and my heart rejoices, you know, with the, with the broadening and the deepening of that notion of covenant. So often we, we, we relegate this to a courtroom or yeah. to you know, a market where things are purchased. And since Christ did all of that, who do you think you are to apply? Well, you know, Christ becomes man, but in the process doesn't get any more glory than he had 
before he became a human. So why go to all of the trouble? Well, it's to not get more for himself, but to give all of what he has to us. Mm-hmm. And so I love what the Catechism points out, that, that the treasury of merits that the church not only possesses, but administers as a mother, is exactly what Christ has merited. It's not a tug of war. What we give to the church, we take from Christ. No, Christ has already lavished it upon his bride for this purpose. And so the commercial exchange is so difficult for us to understand because everything pertains to individual and freedom and the marketplace where the commerce that's taking place is covenantal. It is with a kind of an extended family. And God the Father is the one who who really initiates this. You know, it's pictured in the parable of the prodigal son where, you know, if this person has left the church, it's like the prodigal son in the far country, mm-hmm. you know, and then the father is already waiting for him, running out to meet him, you know, and if that's true for the father, how much more for Mother Church? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so true. Well, let, let's fast forward from the very early inception and the, 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 the kernel of idea that began with the martyrs and go to the Middle Ages. Um, how was indulgences practiced in the Middle Ages? What did that look like? So indulgences in the Middle Ages, I think, um, was a controversial topic even then. People were maybe still figuring out what they were doing. Mm. Um, The atmosphere was different. Um, Europe was being built up. Indulgences were offered for civic works of charity, like building bridges and building roads, building Mm. hospitals. And there was a lot of money all of a sudden. You know, there was currency. Um, being endowed for these charitable works and in exchange or in return their unindulgence would be would be granted or recognized and so you see in these sort of um, woodcuts from the medieval period you see a table with a friar sitting on one side and he's offering pieces of paper to penitents who are coming with their sacks of coinage and you see this kind of embarrassing quid pro quo mercantile kind of thing and um, and I think that is what Martin Luther was mm-hmm. responding to when he posted his 95 theses on the door in Wittenberg. And he proposed a set of ways of teaching about indulgences, um, kind of with a pastoral motivation. How You know, he was asking the same question that people were asking in the great academic centers of Europe. How can we teach indulgences better? And so Martin Luther put out his proposals about what that might entail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, w- while the Pope ultimately holds the keys, in, a certain, in the analogy of the treasury, the treasury is handed over to him as the one who's custodian of the church. Um, in the Middle Ages, the Pope often allowed bishops and then even persons who were sort of further down in the sort of hierarchy to deal with the indulgences. And so you had almost kind of professional sort of indulgence uh, givers. <laughs> and, and it just got out of control in the sense of it, it probably wasn't known what was actually going on. We see this actually in the 95 Thesis because one of them sort of seems to suggest that, you know, if the Pope knew that uh, what was going on, he would want St. Peter's to be burnt to ashes rather than his flock would be treated as they're being treated. Mm. Well, that's only possible, of course, if, if somehow the actual sort of administration of them had really gone down to a very low level. And right, right, disconnected. This is an important point, William, because, you know, Luther, when he nailed the 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg, mm-hmm. however legendary or historical that is, you know, assumed that the Pope had the authority, but also assumes that it's being abused like everybody knows. Right. You know, this is 1517. It isn't until about two years later that, you know, it begins to fracture, that his understanding of imputation, as you point out again in your book, is sort of narrowed and, and I think, distorted. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
But in between the, the letters of the martyrs for those who have strayed and the late medieval excesses, you know, there's also a sort of interim report because you know, in the 9th and 10th centuries, uh, the so-called Dark Ages, the, the Irish priests are coming down and discovering a laity that are baptized but really unformed and sometimes deformed. You know, they've lived a life of profligacy and yet are coming to the sense that, so what do you have? Well, you have handbooks of penance that sort of represent a uniform standard, especially on the part of the Irish priests who are hearing confessions. They want to have a guide so that we're not just sort of drawing some to this confessor because he's so easy. So, you know, if you have, you know, if you've murdered people, if you've committed adultery repeatedly, and now you're coming to confession, well, you know, there are standard responses. You know, first and foremost, you're forgiven because you have expressed your penitence, your contrition. And so the sacrament restores communion between Christ and the sinner. But on the other hand, all of the damage that has been done to the natural order, to your own nature, yeah. this is what the temporal punishments relate to. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the fact that forgiveness is sort of halfway. Yeah. It's complete reconciliation. You're the prodigal son, you're being feted by the father and the family, you know. But on the other hand, the consequences are so extensive that you, you, you know, you're not a convict being punished. You're a penitent who's now accepting responsibility for the damage done by maybe years or decades of profligate behavior. You know? right. And again, once you put it into those terms, you understand why it develops properly, but then how easily it can kind of devolve. Because yeah. it's almost a beautiful representation of, of the, the, the natural corporal, uh, the communal uh, effects of sin, like in the, they would require almsgiving, you know, because the reality is, is you didn't just harm yourself in your sin, you harmed the body of Christ. So now you're taking action to do something to rectify on some level uh, the consequences of the damage you've caused in the body of Christ. And, uh, and we see that, um, I mean, the penances in the early church were, were pretty severe. severe. I mean, you know, adultery, or, or maybe years standing outside church every day right, begging, right. Or, or or something like this, or going on a pilgrimage. Yeah, right. And right. what happened was that in time, a certain um, understanding came in that for some this was this was not this was in a sense too much at a human level, and so indulgences were given such that there was a kind of mitigation of the punishment to a less severe penance. But it wasn't like a sort of get out of jail free card. Right. It was, the, again, the church understanding that the satisfactions have already been made by Christ, right. by the saints. We're joined with them in the mystical body. We tap in mm. to their, their wealth, their connection with God. And some of that is brought in under this idea of mercy to mitigate something of these severe penances. Yeah. So this movement in the, towards the Middle Ages of a mitigation of the penances being less severe is also highly connected with the idea of indulgences. So they were reducing some of those penances, but then there was, that was kind of the rise of some of the indulgences? Well, an indulgence was a sort of reduction of this right. severe public penance, right. but it wasn't just saying, well, it doesn't matter so much anymore. It was an understanding that others, Christ principally, and mm -hmm. the saints in connection with Christ, had super satisfied for sin, right. so something could be given. I mean, it's amazing, yeah. because in a sense what we're saying is, when you go to confession, you receive forgiveness of sins, you receive divine life again in your soul. But God seems in his providence want to leave a little bit for you to do with his help. Right. Yeah? 
But sometimes even that is hard for people, and God's got a system to cater even for that. And that's mercy and that's fullness there. Especially if the penances, as you pointed out, William, are so severe that, you know, for 20 years of committing adultery or guilty of murder, you know, you would be excluded objectively by the church's law for receiving communion for maybe 200 years. Right. So you would be tempted to despair. Forget this, you know. And so indulgences are something that you can do with the treasury of merits, with the mercy of Christ, in order to come home and receive communion. Amen. Stay with us for the next segment of Franciscan University Presents. What is an indulgence? An indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church. An indulgence is partial or plenary according as it removes either part or all of the temporal punishment due to sin. When God created you, he made you like no other person. You are unique, singular, and unrepeatable. So shouldn't your college experience be the same? At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith and reason, wisdom and grace, mercy and truth. You'll study under world-class scholars and seasoned practitioners who are committed to Christ and His Church. With over 40 majors and pre-professional programs, you'll find the formation you need to succeed. You'll discover lifelong friends and mentors who will welcome you, challenge you, and encourage you. Because we believe as Catholics, we are not called to hide from culture, but transform it. At Franciscan University, you'll find more than just a college. You'll find yourself and an educational experience as singular as you are. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking with Dr. Mary Mormon, the new uh, book that she has out on indulgences from Emmaus uh, uh, Academic Publishing, right? Um, so uh, Luther, Catholicism, and the imputation of, of merit. So we've kind of painted a little bit of a picture of the medieval world and, and, and some of the potential abuses, and I want to get a maybe a little later into the, some of that. Um, but we, we talked about the courtroom. Scott, you mentioned that as a courtroom, as a, as a possible analogy uh, that may not, that's flawed, really, uh, as, we, as we look at indulgence. What's a better way to look at indulgences uh, for us as a church? So I thought a lot about this, and it's Scott's fault, but I was so excited about indulgences because they are instances of covenant making with God. Uh, I was always wondering, where do we really make covenant with God? Um, we kind of do in the sacraments. I mean, we obviously do in the sacraments, sure. but indulgences are these very radical instances of offer and acceptance and ratification. Hmm. And I thought, is it the marketplace? No, it's not the marketplace. Is it the courtroom? No, it's not the courtroom. I thought, where does God interact with humanity with His offer, our acceptance, our acts of reliance on His offer? Um, and then it hit me, um, it's a wedding. This is the exchange of nuptial vows, Christ offering himself totally to his church, 
she accepting in return in the acts of her members and indulgences are little particular instances of that covenant. So it's an acting out of that nuptial uh, covenant. I think so. Okay. okay. Yeah, I mean, a wedding might seem like, well, a, a peculiar metaphor to use, you know. Uh, why not the courtroom? Why not, you know, the marketplace? But I think what we have to recognize that this is more than a privileged metaphor. This is an analogy that is divinely revealed in the very beginning where the covenant takes its primordial form in a marriage and in the very consummation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And these are more than literary bookends. It shows that you know, what, what Journey might call a super analogy or an analogy of proper super proportionality, that you have something like a marriage, but it's even more than a marriage, Christ and the church, than Scott and Kimberly. And I think that insight that the church gets from the Holy Spirit, from the saints and the doctors, is sort of what, it's, it's, it's the, uh, the necklace that holds all of these things, the pearls, in, as it were, in place. Mm. And, you know, the covenant as marriage, you know, the, the wife doesn't just get the husband's name. The two become one in terms of property. You know, and so if you're going to resort to courtroom imagery, you're going to have to recognize that the two are one right. in more than a nominal or legal fashion. Mm. It really is an actual communion of persons which involves everything that they once called their own. Mm. And if this is true for us, it's much truer for Christ the bridegroom and the church as his bride and all of the ways that the sacraments administer this, this amazing wealth, the treasury of what Christ has merited for us. I thought that was a really, really good insight actually, Mary, in your book when I was reading it, because I, I taught indulgences in a more technical way. And when I sort of saw that, it kind of struck a, a chord with me, because I was saying to my wife, it's a little bit like this, isn't it? I mean, like, I earn the money and you spend it on the kids. like this, that it, it's, That's you know, once we're married, thing. we have all the wealth together. We have a common bank account. Yeah. So, Christ earns the wealth. He marries the church. The wealth is in common, and then she can spend that wealth on the children as she sees it's necessary. I mean, we do all do that all the time. We think that's normal. Why would it not be sort of super normal uh, yeah, yeah. In, in Christ's relationship with his and, and it's not just, you know, I make the money and you spend the money. It's sort of like how I contribute to our communion. That's right. And then how she enlarges my heart That's right. by, you know, Christ doesn't need the church to him. But, yeah. you know, the fact that it is lavished on the kids, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. this is just, again, more than a preferable metaphor. This is the reflection of mm. calling God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, recognizing that this eternal communion of persons is more than a, fa more, you know, more than a human family. Yeah. But it's more familial than any earthly or human household, too. Mm -hmm. so, so we have a really beautiful analogy of what the intent, what the, the purpose, and what the true meaning is of indulgences. And obviously, we, we touched on this in the last segment about the, uh, uh, some of the abuses or some of the, the we're, we're a little bit off the rails a little bit. Um, and there was truth in that, but there was, there was a lot more that was missing that I think we look back with today's eyes and see something that maybe wasn't present in the Middle Ages. But obviously Martin Luther and others, what was the church's response or, or as we looked at these, um, you know, the Reformation, uh, you know, more than just even Martin Luther, particularly on indulgence, what, what was the church's response and, and how can we look at that today? Right, well the conversation has continued, yeah, obviously, yeah. here we are today. Um, 
So I think it's important to note that medieval preachers were bringing out these nuptial themes they were. Um, in certain sectors. So it's not just for us right today it's on It's not just for us, okay. no. And in fact, the documents are waiting in some Northern European archive for some <laughs> amazing graduate student to find sometime soon. Um, but the, uh, the preachers of indulgences were using this analogy mm. of Christ, the bridegroom, giving all of his goods to his bride, the church, with my body, I thee worship mm -hmm. all my earthly goods, I thee endow. I mean, that's what was said in the, in the nuptial rite itself as, an, as a reflection of what Christ said to his church. Mm -hmm. um, so that idea was present, and it, you know, given the limitations on communicating theology in medieval Europe, you know, there were a lot of misconceptions on the ground. Sure. Um, I think in the Catholic Counter-Reformation, the church continued promulgating indulgences. I think probably um, proposed even more indulgences mm -hmm. and proposed them more rapidly. And then the Councils of Trent addressed some reforms that um, the church felt needed to be made. For instance, um, money was removed from the list of options for obtaining an indulgence because the church recognized that that looked like simony to the mm -hmm. watching world, mm -hmm. even though in effect it was not, but um, the church wanted to avoid scandal. Yeah. And um, in the past three decades, the church has promulgated over 35 universal indulgences that are available, and um, the Incredion on indulgences was made available after the Second Vatican Council. Mm -hmm. So, in the contemporary. The in the hymn book, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, so, indulgences are more available now and hopefully better understood than ever before. Hopefully. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, the distinction now is between partial indulgence and plenary indulgence, yeah. which in some ways simplifies it because when you had the late medieval handbooks on penance applied, you would have, you know, 500 days or two years. And, well, is that time off of purgatory? I would say nine out of 10 Catholics I've known right. have sort of defaulted to that notion. Right. When in fact, it had to do with these very early medieval handbooks on penance that had a uniform standard for penitential discipline, 500 days, you know, two years or whatever. Right. And it was confusing, but it could also mount up and become insurmountable, you know. Right. And so partial plenary, I think, is a way to invite people back to re-understand and to sort of reapply this in their own lives. Right. So the, the beauty of going away from those days, um, you know, cleared up some confusion there. But, but let's even just go partial and plenary. What, what, what are the distinctions there? Well, William, you're going to oh, say sorry. something. Well, I was just only going to say in regard, we, we should be clear that the church did make some sort of condemnations or some try to tidy up prior to the Council of Trent. So in the Fourth Lateran Council, which is a 13th century council, it was already mentioning that there was a, it was already clear there was a problem with indulgences. So we shouldn't think somehow the church was kind of caught napping completely by, by Luther. Mm -hmm. Straight after Luther knelt the 95 Thesis, there was a kind of strong reaffirmation mm -hmm. by Pope Leo X of the importance of indulgences, but it's only in Trent that you really get, I think, a sort of a, a determination to tidy something up here. Okay. And the removal of the money element is p important, but we should be clear, it, it was never that you sort of like, you know, you gave a certain amount of money and you got an indulgence. Almsgiving That's right. That's right. for really good things, I mean, for cathedrals and hospitals, I mean, the, the, the we're used to sort of publicly funded hospitals, or more or less used to them. Um, but, you know, that was simply the realm of the church. They needed to build those things for the poor. That's right. One way of doing it was to say, okay, look, if you give, you know, give alms, that is a good work, like fasting, like pilgrimages, which could have an indulgence attached to it. 
but too much, it's too easy, of course, it simply become like, well, that one costs this much and that one costs that much. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I might interject, too, that scholars like Gary Anderson at Notre Dame, who's done beautiful work on the theology of sin, um, has emphasized like the biblical idea of redeeming your sins by the giving of alms. I mean, yeah. that's straight out of Scripture. Uh, yeah, we've um, lost that. And we had so, him on a show where he went into the Jewish roots of indulgences without calling it indulgences, but the merits of the patriarchs that are referred to throughout, you know, Moses' intercession, you know, for Israel's sake in Exodus 32. Remember the offering of Isaac. Yes, a big part exactly. of that. Exactly. Mm. And how that evokes this sworn mercy from God for all of us mm. to enter into the forgiveness of, of God. Yes. You know, mm. I think there's, I mean, there is a difficulty for the church, and as you get to a place like, like the um, Council of Trent, and you've got to reaffirm indulgences. Indulgences are uh, a sort of delicate uh, interaction of, of multiple um, theological principles. Right. So we've got the idea that sin can be forgiven, but punishment still may be due. Like, for example, David, when he commits adultery with Bathsheba, there's, he's forgiven, but there's still punishment. Then we've got the idea of the mystical body. Then we've got the idea of the power of the keys to, to redistribute the treasury. Th these are sort of, in each one of them is a, is a difficult, though obviously true, principle that you've got to put before somebody and then show them how they delicately go together. So I think it's not surprising that indulgences mm. are one of the most misunderstood things because it's not just, oh, I've got to understand one thing. I've got to understand multiple revealed truths, yeah, yeah. how they hang together. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. That was a good analogy, too, in terms of David and Bathsheba, mm -hmm. because Psalm 51 is that great penitential psalm where he's celebrating his forgiveness, the reconciliation. There's a fervent charity there, but there are also temporal consequences that the prophet Nathan has to reveal. But again, you come back again and again to the logic of love. Mm. And you know the, the catechism is very clear on how fervent charity can attain the complete purification of the sinner in such a way that the punishment, no punishment would remain. You know, so what God is most interested in, what the church as mother is most interested in, is stoking these divine flames of fervent charity. Yeah. And yeah. you know, in a certain sense, that just burns away all of the dross and That's purifies our mm -hmm. hearts. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and it, again, transforms from the courtroom where the convict is being punished you know, to the confessional where a prodigal son or daughter is being reconciled and brought home. Yeah. And the, and the centra centrality of love and conversion is clear in the conditions for the plenary indulgence, because for the plenary indulgence, you must have complete detachment from sin. That's right. Not just mortal sin, but venial sin. Yeah? So it's very clear that the church is, like the Good Mother, is giving this as a sort of, uh, you, you know, saying this is an opportunity for you to respond to your father in love. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that, if, if one understands that, one to see, well, you, you can't really buy that. Yeah. You can put your money down, but if you don't have the detachment from sin, it right. doesn't do anything. Yeah, and there's you, no money that can pay for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there's also no human muscle of the body or the soul whereby we can just kind of detach ourselves yeah. from all sin. Mm -hmm. I mean, what that has to do is to stoke the fire of, of, of faith. Lord, I'll need you to do that. Make it so. Right. Hope I'll endure whatever consequences of my sins, the, the ones that I have confessed, but it ultimately leads to this fides formata, faith formed by love. Yeah. You know, and if there is one thing that Martin Luther did was emphatically deny the notion of fides formata, that the idea that faith must be formed by charity, no. You know, uh, and for various reasons, some are awful, some are plausible. But I, 
I think that this notion that Paul states in Galatians 5, that we are justified by a faith that is perfected, formed by love, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's complex theological jargon, and yet I think it strikes a chord in the human heart. Once you understand it, you're like, well, of course, you know. Yeah. But I think it also gets us back to the, the, the point that you were making, William, that this is not just like one doctrine you can pull out and examine and then explain. Mm-hmm. It's just interconnected to a whole network of things that you have to understand properly to get this right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's part of its importance. It's like a little kind of linchpin in a machine. You take that out, the whole machine falls apart. If you take out the linchpin of indulgences, actually the kind of ecclesiology, your, your theology of the church kind of crumbles on the floor. Right. Yeah. It seems yeah. so small in itself, like the linchpin, right. but it's critical. Mm. It holds the parts together. Well, and that's why it's so crucial for us today to really renew our understanding of it. And I think of St. Francis, uh, you know, 800 some odd years ago, he got the first, I believe, the first plenary indulgence because he had an apparition of our Lord saying, I want to remit sins uh, and then the consequences of sins. Uh, Stay with us for the next segment of Franciscan University Presents. Remission of Temporal Punishment. An indulgence is obtained through the Church, who, by virtue of the power of binding and loosing granted her by Christ Jesus, intervenes in favor of individual Christians and opens for them the treasury of the merits of Christ and the saints to obtain from the Father of mercies the remission of the temporal punishment due for sins. Thus the Church does not want simply to come to the aid of these Christians, but also to spur them to works of devotion, penance, and charity. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. This entire program springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Uh, Right now we're recording this in our communication arts studios. Um, Our students are operating the cameras and equipment. Our panelists are theology faculty here at the university. We've been talking to Dr. Mary Mormon about indulgences. And, And part of the title here is Luther Catholicism and the Imputation of Merit. Uh, imputation. Uh, let's go into that a little bit. Is that is that a discovery of, of Luther, or is there some broader uh, context that you could bring to that? So it's a consoling and beautiful idea, right? Jesus takes everything that he is and covers us with himself in our neediness, um, which is a, a graceful, um, merciful idea that Luther brought to the fore. Mm-hmm. And since the Protestant movement um, for the past 500 years, I think has been a very consoling idea for people in the Protestant tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to us today to remember that this idea was alive and well in the church's teaching and practice all along, and it was particularly alive and well in the practice of indulgences. Hmm. It's in indulgences where, apart from the sacraments, but very much within the community, that the merits of Jesus are imposed upon us from without. No matter what our internal state is, we are in a state of grace to receive indulgences, but this is where Jesus comes and clothes us with His merits, with His righteousness, um, so that we stand as though we really had not sinned before the Father Hmm. when we have attained an indulgence. Luther gets this, of course, from St. Paul in Galatians and Romans, where in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So reckoned is translated as imputed, logizasthai. It's a tough notion, but the root, of course, is logos, the word. And so God pronounces this word of remission. 
But, you know, to, to declare somebody to be forgiven, to declare them to be just, is not merely de declarative. It's not just imputation. I think there are two sides to this door, this coin, you know, in, you know, imputation, but also infusion or impartation. And Luther, I think, wants to, to shave the door so thin that it only ends with one side, and that is imputation. When, in fact, if God is reckoning, if, if, if he's declaring, God can't declare something without doing it. Right. When God said, let there be light, there was only darkness until he declared light. And then out of the darkness comes the light. When God declares sinners to be just, it is never merely forensic. It is not just imputation. There really is a transformation. So that we're not, we are covered. We're clothed with Christ, but we're also filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And so the transformation is precisely what imputation initiates. And so to say that it's imputation is true, but to say it's only imputation is a kind of late medieval legalism. You know, when the law mm. suddenly becomes nothing more than the imposition of a superior will. You know, before in the ancient church, the law was an expression of God's intellect who knows us and our natures mm. better than we do, who loves us more than we love ourselves. And so he legislates what will perfect, fulfill, and heal us. And so the law is not a threat to my freedom. It's a condition of possibility for me to be free. But that view of law is thrown out and replaced with a kind of arbitrary notion of law at least 200 years before Luther by the Franciscan Occam, who's excommunicated. And Luther declares himself, I am nothing if I'm not an Occamist, which means I embrace a view of law that does not really strike the chord of the covenant. It's a much more contractual view uh, mm. that is common today which I think is what makes it so not only problematic for people, even devout Catholics to understand, but what makes it so urgent for the church to correct this misunderstanding so that we really can embrace and live out the mercy. You know, as John Paul called it, you have this quote from 99 when he gave this sermon preparing for the year of mercy, the great jubilee, that the, that the logic of the covenant undergirds the whole system of salvation. You know, music to my ears. You know? <laughs> yeah, so I think, I mean, Scott's point there is really, really yeah. seminal. That The point is that, you know, we, we will things because they are good, but it's the other way around with God. They are good because he wills them. Mm. So if we are in a state of favor, we have the good will of God, it's going to produce some goodness in us, namely divine life. And so it, it's the problem, as you say, of taking one without the other. God can impute, he can, as it were, sort of apply Christ's life, death, and resurrection to us in baptism, but it actually produces something in us. It cannot not produce something in us, divine life in the soul. This must never be forgotten. And perhaps this is part of the reason why with the indulgences, they are connected with this detachment from sin, because it's not simply enough of saying, okay, impute. It's imputation that's going to bring out, bring around more conversion. Mm, mm. It's always the way of the church, because it's the way of God. And I mean, this plays in, I mean, again, Luther wouldn't be talking about imputation of merit, uh, right? Uh, well, he's talking about imputation of Christ's righteousness, right. which is the singular and exclusive merit. Okay. But once again, once you understand that Christ is not gaining glory that he lacked before his incarnation, he becomes incarnate for the purpose of lavishing this upon his bride mm -hmm. and those who are his, you know, younger brothers and sisters by their union with him. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the the idea that he imputes, 
is a declarative act that is truly legal, but not legalistic, not merely or reducible to law. Gotcha. You know, Occam, I think, in some ways is the source, although you've got to be careful not just to simply vilify him. But when Occam says things like, God could crucify a donkey to atone for sin, God could make murder something that is meritorious, you know, mm -hmm. God could make martyrdom mortal sin, you know, that kind of construal of God's law is to me a subversion of love. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's contrary to truth, which is contrary to God. In that right. Stuff. Okay, so Scott I talked a little bit about John Paul II, but let's talk about indulgences today, um, uh, John Paul II. So we're still talking about indulgences today in the church. Uh, what is What are some of the things that, that we should think about, as, or what has the church been talking about with regards to indulgences today? So I think one of the most beautiful statements on indulgences recently was made by St. John Paul II in a brief sermon 1999 and the sermon is entitled indulgences are expressions of god's mercy mm. it's a brief sermon it's five pages long and the pope refers to indulgences as um, a medicinal um, grace mm. from god for our healing as well as our juridical restoration um, and it's inter interesting too as we consider um, the role of love in our restoration indulgences attached to acts which are all about fostering and demonstrating love and binding the Christian community together. In fact, when you look at indulgence grants that are housed in the Apostolic Penitentiary in the Vatican, for the past 300 years, they all conclude with the same formula. This indulgence is to be performed for the eradication of heresy, for the support of the faithful, and for the exaltation of Holy Mother Church. Mm. So there's this sense of community and of mm. family um, just intertwined with every act that the church recognizes as indulgence. Wow. wow, so it's really uh, very fixated on the advancing of the kingdom of God uh, Always. here on this earth. Yeah, yeah that's powerful. And and, and so uh, the, the practices, again, I, I, I mentioned this in the last segment, but, you know, uh, Francis, and there are so many indulgences that are um, uh, plenary as well as partial indulgences, the simplification of that for our lives. Of You've got a partial uh, uh, remission and then a potentially full remission, right, uh, of the consequences of sin. Um, but there's always those those sticky uh, points of the the, the 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 full detachment from sin. I mean, this is this is challenging in our Plus lives. Plus, there's the sticky point of Catholics picking up books that were written before Vatican II. <laughs> where you have 500 days, That's you know, right. uh, indulgence for reading the scriptures each day. You yes, know? yes. And again, you've got to go back. It's not time off of purgatory. Yeah. You know, though many still kind of think that way. Yeah. You know, but even purgatory is not well understood apart from the logic of the covenant and the love of the Father, mm. because it's all about purging us of these disordered appetites and attachments and vices and 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 God wouldn't be loving us if he just said well you know you're so depraved you know I, I'm just going to forgive you and let you in anyway I mean this really is a winnable war it's a battle worth fighting but only because we have so much of God's help yeah you know yeah. and purgatory is not a second chance it really is the thing that the sinner longs for in order to see the face of God. Please burn off the residual dross of my selfishness so that I can love you as I've been loved. Yeah. Well, so even the days, in fact, uh, misunderstood, it's not really days of purgatory, it was days of public penance, penance on right. this earth. We were talking about this earlier, that the public penance was severe and it was yes. mitigated. It was, you know, how much mitigation, otherwise you'd have to do two years of this. Yeah. Actually, we'll apply through the mercy of God, satisfactions of Christ and his saints. Now, that would cater for two years. Yeah, yeah. Even in the medieval period, in talking about indulgences, St. Catherine of Genoa 
brings out her understanding of purgatory as the very fires of the divine love. Right. So this yeah. is all purgatory is. If yeah. you see these poor sinners and they're talking about heat and fire, mm -hmm. that's just because they're in the presence of God and His love hurts and because they're not ready for it. Yeah. Um, and so in this way, indulgences you know, could be construed as our self-preparation. Right. Um, to be Here or later, presence. you pay me now or pay me later. Right, and it's just the way we use our time. <laughs> so, so let's think about what, what are some of the indulgences that people can take, you know, what are some of the common things that people can do? Scott mentioned the reading of scriptures that used to have a 500 days attached to it or something like that, right? So what are some of the indulgences that we can partake uh, to, to remit some of the consequences of our... There are so many that are so easy now. In fact, for the reading of Scripture, there's a plenary indulgence attached to reading Scripture for half an hour wow. under the normal conditions for a plenary. Yeah, let's, um, let's do, let's, if we could, just to do the normal conditions uh, of what a, um, uh, for an indulgence. So you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but it's sacramental confession, mm -hmm. um, reception of Holy Mass within a few days of obtaining the indulgence and in a state of detachment from sin. Right, and prayers for the Holy Father. Add. Yeah. Prayers for the Holy Father, yes. Prayers exactly. for the Holy Father, that's right, for the intentions of the Holy Father. And receiving Holy Communion and confession within an eight-day period. Or and then, then the, 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 the one that is the trickier one is the, the detachment from sin. That's only required for the plenary, plenary indulgence. Right, yeah, right. Because there's more, more at stake. So we, uh, reading of scriptures, are there any others that we should... Half hour adoration. That's right. Uh, Half hour yeah, adoration. Saying the Apostles' Creed. Any visit. And can you do all of this all the time, regularly? Yes. <laughs> you know, can you keep going? There's a partial indulgence attached to every sign of the cross that we make. Yeah. Every act of mental prayer. Um, every, even a brief visit to the most holy sacrament on the altar. Mm. Um, I mean, it's really so simple. And perhaps one of the most important categories is the visiting of uh, cemeteries. Okay. Uh, but this factors in the fact that we can actually make indulgences for, for others, yes. not just for ourselves though because the, the souls in purgatory are not directly under the authority of the Pope, um, we don't offer them quite the same way. It's, it's more like we offer them by suffrage, by prayer. But it really, it strikes me as an absolutely critical thing for us to, to take seriously, especially actually in the first, um, the octave for the first days of November, yeah, you know, when we have holy souls. Each time we visit a cemetery, we say the prayers, we only have to go to Mass, and confession once over the whole octave. But each time we go there, we can offer that for a soul in that graveyard or a soul that's beloved to us for full plenary indulgence. Mm, it's, mm. It's, it's a way to help those who have no doubt helped us when they were on this, yeah. this earth. We speak of the three states of the church, you know, the triumphant, the church triumphant, the, ch the church militant, and the church suffering. Not because there are three churches or denominations, but because mm. there are three conditions, but there is one church and the communion of saints I would say is more real than we can possibly imagine. Yeah. And so the benefits of the suffrages on, for the sake of the dead who, who die in a state of grace, yeah. but who have not been remitted of their temporal punishments, which I suspect includes many, if not most of us, yeah. you know, that sort of thing not only helps them, it purifies our love and actualizes this reality we call doctrine, and that is the communion of saints. Yeah. It's a practical way to recognize how we can love our, the souls of the faithful departed, yeah. who we miss so much. And yeah. It's win-win because we, we do that for them. They are not able to do that in purgatory. They are in a sort of more passive mode waiting for us. We do that, they then go to heaven, and then they can intercede Return. for us. It's Return. absolute win-win. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It really is a fraternal you know, uh, logic that, again, the more individualistic a culture gets, the more difficult it is to imagine that this, 
this sort of thing could be true, much less reality yeah. itself. Mm-hmm. I always think that when you have someone who passes away, you always want to do something for the family who's grieving. Right. You know, and, but here's a way that you can really help them, right? I mean, this is a way, a very tangible way. Cause I, 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 at least as a guy, I always want to do something. And, it, and sometimes you just need to be there. Sometimes it's just sitting in adoration. Sometimes it's praying the rosary. Sometimes it's a, a corporal uh, you know, act uh, on their behalf. But, but that's the beauty of the body, that we're giving of ourselves mm-hmm. and helping each other and then hopefully counting on their prayers. So, so when I die, I hope my children are, are praying for me, are, are, are interceding, seeking as many plenary indulgences as possible, because I'll need a lot. Uh, yeah. you know. In the modern time also, I think since the Vatican Council, Mary would know better than I, but, but there's been a sort of impetus for indulgences because Paul VI, straight after the mm. council in 67, promulgated a document uh, in which he made certain reforms, kind of streamlined, you might say, the indulgences. But it, if you read it, it's a, it's a very strong encouragement of the importance of this activity in the church today. So you think about the Vatican Council as kind of shaking things up and renewing. Well, it's, it was also something that got back to the basics, which is so important for us. Indulgences is included in that. Yeah, yeah. Stay with us for the final segment of Franciscan University Presents. Indulgences for the Dead Since the faithful departed, now purified, are also members of the same communion of saints, one way we can help them is to obtain indulgences for them, so that the temporal punishments due for their sins may be remitted. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy, and you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily Mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages. Welcome to the final segment of Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking to Dr. Mary Mormon um, about indulgences. Uh, William, could you start us off? Yeah, so it strikes me indulgences tap into two sort of very current things in our society or in the church. To my mind, we're kind of in the age where divine mercy is particularly mm. sort of, um, it's something that the Lord is putting before us. I mean, divine mercy uh, devotion is, is the dominant devotion in the church. Yeah? And indulgences just tap straight into that because as we've, we've been talking about this, we go to confession, we confess our sins. I mean, the mercy is incredible. Yeah, the guilt is gone. If we're in mortal sin, we're infused again with divine life. Eternal punishment is done away with. And God leaves, it seems, in his providence for his reasons, sometimes uh, some temporal punishment. Uh, partially our contrition won't be sufficient to, to totally eradicate that. And so you think, well, you know, the mercy is incredible, but the mercy hasn't gone to the end, to the very end. He hasn't loved us to the very end. Yeah? And then we see what indulgences are. They are the loving to the very end. Okay, for you, if it's even not possible for you to deal with the temporal punishment of your sin, yes. there's a system hmm. in God's mercy to deal with it. So it really is something, I think, at the center of this current movement of understanding the importance of God's mercy. The second thing, I think, is the current of individualism in our society. It's a kind of antidote to that because we, when we have an indulgence, we are admitting we are utterly dependent upon others 
on Christ, yes, but also the, the satisfactions of others who have gone before us. Uh, we cannot make it on our own. Yeah. We're not going to be saved on our own. God saves us as a people. And indulgences, if you accept them, you accept that, actually, that is the truth. Mm-hmm. I cannot do this on my own. I think the final thing is that, and Paul VI was very clear on this in this document he promulgated after the Second Vatican Council, that indulgences, they lead to virtue. Why? Well, one, they lead to humility, precisely because I have to admit, I cannot do it, Lord. You know, I have to turn to my neighbor and say, I cannot do it. I have to turn to the saints and say, I cannot do it, you, you help me. Uh, it leads to charity, because we realize we can do them for others. We can do them for those who no longer can do them for themselves, those in purgatory. And it leads to, to obedience, because we say, I accept the church has the power to do this. Mm-hmm. Not because she invented that power for herself, but because the Lord clearly gave his bride that power while he walked on earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you, William. Scott? One, maybe two takeaways. You know, I'm thinking of how many ways there are today that the church gives us to gain indulgences. You know, but there's always the condition of intentionality. You have got to intend it. And so I think back years to when I was teaching all our kids the morning offering that we would do in the morning as a family in family prayer devotions. And, I, and, and one of the kids found out that I was using the long version. Why don't we use the short? And I, I said, for the salvation of souls, the reparation of sins, the intentions of the Holy Father, and the acquisition of indulgences. You know, there's a sense in which if you just put that in your morning offering, there is what theologians call the virtual intention. Because it covered, you know, every time you read the scriptures, for, or every time you, you know, oh, I forgot to say that I intended that for an, you know, no, it's, it's the mercy of God covering the whole day and all of the activities, your prayers, your works, your joys, your sufferings, and this sort of thing. Practically, I remember when I was first studying this notion of indulgences in the light of the covenant, I was a Catholic, a new one, and Kimberly was not, and she was far. And I've, I've told this story once or twice, but, you know, she was exasperated with the kids. Our two boys were very young. Your boys, they're acting up. What do you mean? My, you know. So I, I, I announced a day of jubilee. Tomorrow, you know, whatever you tell me you've done will go unpunished. And Kimberly's looking at me like, you, you didn't check with me, you know. What are you talking about? And the next day, both of them came up to my study in the attic and came clean. And we hugged, we kissed, we prayed, you know, I blessed them. And then they went and did restitution, but not as convicts, you know, but precisely as penitents. And by dinner time, Kimberly's like, what kind of magical wand did you wave, you know? Yeah. And I said, I'm just trying to father our kids like God fathers his through Christ in the church. And I forgot that, you know, two or three years later when she came into the church, she said, that did more than all of your arguments because I saw it, you know, the healing and, you know, and how they became best of friends again. And I, and I just think that we know that deep down that parents are not threatened when older siblings are helping younger siblings. Wait, I can do that. No, that's how love is not only communicated, but then multiplied exponentially. And if that's true, again, in human families, how much truer is it in God's? Mm-hmm. Thanks, Scott. Mary. That is such a beautiful story. And I thank you both for bringing forth these beautiful points to flesh out the story of indulgences. Um, I think of a time when I was doing my research for the book and rounded a corner in the Louvre where I was looking at medieval objects and there was a small painting hanging really behind a door 
from Northern Europe in the 15th century. And it's entitled, um, The Christian Allegory. And the artist shows Christ enthroned, and right next to him is a beautiful woman clothed in blue. It's not Our Lady, it's the church. Mm. And she's holding an open treasure chest that Christ has given to her, and it's on her lap. And it's literally overflowing with jewels and precious things. And you see a pair of hands reaching up from beneath them in prayer and supplication, obviously asking for her to give them something of what she has. And um, that struck me as sort of the visual synopsis of what I wanted to do with my work on indulgences was this vindication of this really beautiful practice that the church has held forth that has been so misunderstood mm. and is difficult to understand. Um, and secondly, I think about those hands. What happens to those hands when they have those treasures within them? Um, now they have something to do. They're dignified. Um, they can go forth and share with others. Um, and I think maybe that is one of the greatest aspects of, of God's mercy that we find in indulgences today. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mary. Um, thank you for the book. Thank you for your work. Uh, if you've enjoyed today's program, we do have the handbook of indulgences here for you, the the. Endocron? Encuridian. Encuridian, thank you. Uh, the Encuridian of Indulgences. Uh, you can get it at faithandreason.com or just for asking. Um, this is, gives you a, a great insight into indulgences and, and shares some of the wealth uh, that the church wants to give us. And I, I love that, that, that image. I'll look it up ne next, uh, that image from the Louvre. Um, but to really see this as a wealth of the church that we're supposed to bring and open up for our own lives, for our families, and to really to, to lavish it on our children and our our, our beloved deceased. Um, as we look at this opportunity, much like many others, as an opportunity for us to be involved, to, to mix our lives, our, our hearts uh, with the sacrifices of Christ and offering it back to, to God. Uh, he gives us that invitation uh, to be a part of, of remitting uh, some of the consequences of our sins. And this is, this is a, the great humility of our God and the great power of His grace that, that He will forgive us, He will transform us, but He wants to do more than even just that. He wants to help uh, lead us into a new path of life. Um, I want to invite you to be a part of Franciscan University's mission to educate, to evangelize, and send forth joyful disciples. Uh, maybe you would come here to our campus in Steubenville, Ohio to take classes, undergraduate or graduate, or be on our online programs and, and earn your degree or certificate. Uh, or join us at some of our summer conferences with dynamic speakers and inspiration and, and great resources. Or travel with us on to holy shrines around the world, which is often an indulgence, actually, as you travel on pilgrimages. Uh, um, actually, come to our campus. There's a, there, our chapel has an indulgence attached to our Portsyunkala Chapel. Um, but, but we also just want to equip you through faith and reason, uh, an online resource to equip you for the new evangelization. And until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.